Welcome to Clap with Jane with Jane Clap. I know some of the most interesting and inspiring people who are helping to keep humanity afloat in their own unique ways. I want you to meet them too. I wish to acknowledge the land on which I operate. For thousands of years, it has been the traditional land of the Huron-Wendat, the Seneca, and most recently, the Mississaugas of the Credit River. Today, this meeting place is still home to many indigenous peoples from across Turtle Island, and I am grateful to have the opportunity to work on this land. Hi, folks. I'm so excited to have Trace Barber Aguila here with us, who is the founder of A Thrive Life. They are a two-spirited indigenous healing practitioner consultant, educator, writer, and death doula. Trace is a transracial adoptee and multi-ethnic of Muska, Romani Sinti, and Ashkenazi descent. Their practice is focused on education, support, and guidance for grief and trauma healing with movement, mental health, spirituality, creativity, and community. Trace lives and works on the unceded and occupied land of Lenape, known as Brooklyn, New York. A true Enneagram 8, fiercely compassionate, a disruptor, vulnerable, and open to initiating and holding space for tough conversations, Trace's work is anti-racist, anti-oppressive, uncolonial, non-pathologizing, intersectional, and an interdisciplinary approach of trauma-informed and healing-centered engagement. And Trace is just such an honor to know and hear you get to meet them. Hi, everybody. I'm so excited to have Trace Barber Aguila on with us today. Um, what a day to be talking to you, Trace. Um, I, I was, we were just chatting about your death doula work. Um, and I, I'm already like chomping at the bit to talk to you about that, but I want to give folks a chance to hear from you, um, about what isn't in your bio that you wanted to share about yourself before I start asking you questions. Um, well, I think a lot, um, about me is in my bio, but I want, I think one of the things that I really want to stress is that number one, um, I am a complex trauma survivor, but one of the things that I always stress to people when they, when they view me and they see what I'm doing is I've gone through a considerable amount of support. I've gone through a considerable amount of processing. I've gone through that. I'm not done yet. I'm human. But so when you see the work that I do, it's with the understanding that behind the scenes, there is an huge support system that therapy, coaching, sometimes two coaches, support groups, all of those things. And I built that and curated that specifically for myself so that I can do the work that I do. Mm -hmm. So I want to make that really clear. Um, I don't consider myself, um, I consider that some of the things that I do is zone of genius. You know, that's a term. Um, I don't call myself an expert, although I've had coaches say, yes, you need to. Um, but I really definitely am not. Um, there's a difference between being a leader and a servant leader, right? So that I'm more on the side of energetic exchanges, making sure that things are equitable and equal and that type of thing. I never want to be placed on a pedestal ever. 
Um, that's very problematic. I also want to point out that, um, yes, indeed, there's a certain amount of privilege that I do carry as someone who has genocide showing skin. Um, but my background, I'm a transracial adoptee. That means that I was of a different race and ethnicity as the parents who adopted me. Um, and I was adopted late in life. So I've lived a certain life before I was adopted. And I also want to stress like coming into my identity in terms of being a two-spirit non-binary person came late in life. So I'm still in that exploration because I've known my whole life and then something allowed the door to be open for me. So those are some things that are not in my bio that, um, that I think is really important to stress um, because I think that sometimes when we are either online or we are in social media or we are on podcasts, people don't get to see the full story. But that's okay because we're not required to tear ourselves open and spread ourselves all over the place. We can give things to people in bits and pieces. And that's actually something that people who've survived complex trauma do. You don't necessarily tell your story in a linear fashion. You sometimes leave out things. There's a reason for that. And that is something that I have been given permission and I give permission to myself to do as well that I don't have to tell everybody everything. Hmm. Yeah. Yeah. That, that, that's a way to practice a certain amount of safety for oneself that we put a filter <laughs> on what is public property and who gets access to what and put up barriers around that. And that's not being inauthentic. No, not at all. No, no. no. It's, uh, it's amazing to be uh, in conversation with you today. And, you know, it just dawned on me how synchronistic this is because um, there, there's a loss. Someone, someone died, passed on in um, our community in Toronto, and her name uh, was Diane Bruni. And uh, just watching the shockwaves of her death kind of move through our community, and she, she you know, impacted people all over the world, but um, just noticing how people are processing their, that grief online and um, in community, trying to so, I feel like, desperately clamor for a sense of community when so many people are in so much, like, grief and loss and disbelief that someone seemed, she, you know, larger than life and such a fighter and spoke out so much against what was going on in the com yoga community and just so powerful. And just, I've, I've just been watching like how we're trying to come together online to process the death of someone. And you've been a death doula since you were how old or working with death? 16. Um, but if you go back to my childhood, the first time I attended a funeral and actually was a part of it, I was in elementary school and it was someone that I was very close to. Wow. Wow. Do you want to leave that there? Or do you want to open that it, up? I mean, it's something when you grow up. So I was raised for a portion of my life 
um, with my birth mother and it was very traumatic and there was a lot of death and substance abuse and all sorts of things swirling around me and abuse and all of that. But then when I was adopted, I was adopted and my family lived in a very rural community. And if you know anything about rural communities, they're still very much the same, regardless of the advent of the internet. Everybody knows everybody. The towns that I lived in were like a thousand people or less. I think one town I lived in, there were 400 or 800 people in it. That's teeny, teeny, teeny. So that's what I grew up in. And not exceptionally diverse, except for me and maybe one other person. <laughs> um, <clears throat> so when you think about things like a child within the community passes, and it's very sudden, um, that those shockwaves, like you were talking about, those shockwaves reverberate. But here's the thing, when you grow up in a rural community, because you are literally around birth and death all the time, because you think about farming, livestock, raising, all of those things. So we were around things like, I know how to pull a calf when it's being born and it's struggling and the, the, the mother is struggling. I know, you know, I've all these things that happen. So you're around birth and death constantly. It is a constant cycle that you are aware of. You grow your own food. So of course you're around that even. So you're, I would say for most people that I've encountered in the rural communities that I've lived in, it's not that they don't experience grief. They just have a very different take. I grew up with a very different take on death and how to approach it and what that was and that it was literally a part of life. Whereas oftentimes you'll see in more metropolitan areas, death is this taboo. It's something to be scared of. It's this mystery. It causes people great anxiety at their core. But where I grew up, it did not. It was fact of life. Were we sad? Did we grieve? Yes, we did. But we had certain innate processes that occurred to cope with it. When someone died within the community, especially when you're thinking about a child, of course, everybody attended the funeral. The entire town attended the funeral. You were allowed, especially if you were a friend, like this was my friend. I was allowed to pay respects. I was allowed to view, like viewing an open casket is normal per se, right? But what's normal, you know, but for us, that was a part of everyday life. That was just what life was. Mm -hmm. So I don't look back at it. Maybe someone else may find that traumatic. I don't look back at it as being traumatic because it wasn't for me. Mm -hmm. I, you know, and even in my family, you were asked as a child, do you want to attend the funeral? Mm -hmm. You were given a choice, your own consent, whether you wanted to be there or not. You would be asked as a child, we would be asked, how do you want to say goodbye? How do you want to honor your grandparent? Mm -hmm. How would you like to participate in this? That was honored. So 
I think for me, it's a really beautiful thing because it's an aspect of my life and an aspect of my own psyche, right? And my energy that I don't have those barriers that some people might have. Mm-hmm. And I'm fortunate and very grateful that I don't. Mm. Would you say that our fear of death is what makes our culture sick in a lot of ways? Yes. Mm. Yeah. It's, and I think that there is, I'm actually, um, there's a, and, and something about COVID, COVID brought this up, right? This fear of unknown, this fear. That's why I, I almost admire people who have very deep connections to spirit, to particular religions, because in those religions, um, and I very much respect it, there is this honor that and dignity and relationship that is brought to the table in terms of death. And it helps those people not have a certain level of anxiety. It helps them have a certain level of reverence. It helps them have a certain level of peace and not have that death anxiety or that anticipatory grief when it comes to death or even contemplate in great sort of existential crisis, their own personal mortality. There's something really beautiful about that, right? Mm-hmm. That you don't have to necessarily go through that. Through that, you know. And I think that everybody, whatever you feel is going to be your afterlife, is probably going to be your afterlife. Mm-hmm. I honor whatever anybody believes. Mm-hmm. That's their truth. That's essential to them. And where they're at, then I'm going to honor that. Hmm. Wow. Do you feel like if we were able to live in a way of acknowledging that we are going to die, then we would be less assholes to each other? Yes, definitely. <laughs> that's a that's a yes. I think that. Um, and there's and I have an example. Okay. Do you mind if I do a tiny bit of self disclosure? I won't do extreme, like. Um, just an example from my own life. Um, my family completely changed after my brother passed away. When did he die? He died in 2013, um, very suddenly. And um, he was my younger brother. And my relationship with, I was estranged from him at the time. So that was something that I had to grapple with. Because I was to the point at that time, I even told people he was already dead because I was estranged from him. And it was a pretty, pretty um, strained relationship being the older sibling. And I had to care for him for a lot of my adulthood. And uh, so we were estranged when I cut him off and put up boundaries. And but it was very my relationship with my parents was very strained, too. And there was a lot of sort of like infighting and like we were not very nice to each other sometimes. And, and there was just a lot of misunderstanding and things like that. That slowly started changing from the point of his death, because I think that it was a real wake up call 
for us that really life is really truly that precious. Because regardless of you being sure of what's going to be in the, un, you know, in the afterlife or whatever it is to you, there's still this little bit of unknown. There's still this little bit of like, you know, um, and for us, it started a journey that we're still on. We still have some misunderstandings. We have my parents are awesomely progressive, but still boomers. So, um, <laughs> And I'm, you know, of a generation that's pretty laid back and we were the latchkey kids and things like that, you know, so. Um, but yeah, it changed. It totally changed. Mm. And as I'm going through this process as deepening my practice as a death doula, um, because I did take a break. I, we call it companioning. So I was companioning myself and not taking on any death doula clients, actual clients for a while after um, my and getting some extra grief training and things well after my brother and sisters both of them passed um but it's deepened like as i'm on this journey of deepening and focusing it's completely changed like my relationship with them my relationship with other people maybe there are places where i snapped at people before or made mistakes and things that i said that i've come back to go ooh, i should never have said that i'm sorry and it's allowed me to give myself and others a little bit more grace and compassion grace i love what does grace mean to you grace for me means um having an awareness of the fluidity of human beings to the point that you have discernment in how you judge, because we're going to judge. We're human beings. We judge. Anybody who says, oh, don't be judgmental. No, we judge. We are. We're human beings. Judgment is actually essential to being a human being. Mm -hmm. You can call it discernment. You can call it judgment. Whatever it is, it's actually judgment. And so grace, I think, allows you to be a little more discerning in your judgment and also allows you, if you aren't discerning in your judgment, if you are quick to judge, if you do snap, to go, okay, I have some accountability there, but at the same time, I'm a human being. Mm -hmm. So offering grace to other people is really uh, balanced by being able to do that for ourselves as well. Yes, it is. Mm -hmm. You have to offer grace to yourself. You have to offer grace to other people, but you, you have to know what it is first, right? And live in it before you can offer it to anybody else. I think too, for me, like, grace i think of the stupid shit i've done in my life and somehow my life didn't fall apart or you know something bad didn't happen when i went to thailand to the full moon party by myself and like you know like i think i think of grace is also like when i reflect on the the ways that um i've been held at different times in my life it makes me very humble yeah yeah it keeps us in a state of humility and um gratitude where possible because i know what it feels like to be offered grace and i and without getting into it we you offered me a mountain of grace um in an interaction we had and i know what that felt like and it made me it made me realize that 
I could do that for someone else because I was offered that. Yeah. Now, that being said, (laughs) there is still accountability in grace, Mm -hmm. right? There's still accountability there. I, I believe that they are like so many things are two sides of the same coin. Hmm. Well, Grace, it's like, okay, I'm offering you this grace. And now how are you going to step into it and honor it? Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Sort of like what you described happened in your family. Mm-hmm. You, you all stepped into wanting to be different with one another, I suppose. We did. And, you know, it's been, it's been a process. Like I spent six weeks with my, my parents over the course of COVID and there were some, whoo, some things that came up, but it needed to happen. I look back on it now and I go, yeah, that was pretty crappy. And we all are accountable for whatever part we played in it, but it needed to happen because what happened is never going to happen again. Mm-hmm. 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 We learned from it and we're in a completely different place. Mm-hmm. If you could like tell somebody one thing about death that you don't think is commonly uh, talked about in our culture, what would it be? Or in, in Nobody, North, North American white body culture, let's okay. say. Nobody talks about the fact that um, nobody talks about what really happens in active death. Um, trigger warning. Mm-hmm. Okay. Mm-hmm. I'm going to talk a little bit. I'm not going to get graphic, but I'm going to talk a little bit. Um, my birth mother had um, now had a disease that um, now is curable, but back then it was not curable. She died at 48. And, um, I was there for the whole thing. One of the things that people don't talk about, but I'm very fortunate that the hospice workers did is they actually sat down and described what actually will happen if people have certain conditions at the time of their death, what they physically will go through and what you will have to witness. People don't talk about that stuff. Mm. It's real. People don't talk about active death. Like I've even had clients who had no clue when someone said, when I was, we were at the beginning of a dive, you know, cause I will work with people all the way from diagnosis of terminal illness to, um, they had no idea that there was a, something called active death that the act that death is it it's not switching off a, a light bulb it doesn't work that way it's not a switch the physical body actually goes through a process of death mm-hmm. and it is it is um it should be honored it should be you should be aware of it because that in itself, if you're not aware of it, think about how traumatic that could be for someone. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. If we're taught that death is like a light switch, right? You just get turned off. Mm-hmm. 
And things gradually shut down is what you're saying. Yes. You gradually shut down. There's certain things that happen. Um, there is a certain point where you realize that, um, this is also not talked about. There is a, a certain point, and I love that my family spoke to me about this from the time that I was like six, seven years old. There's a certain point when the actual spirit or psyche leaves the body, mm. and it is very noticeable. Mm. It is witness. You can witness that. Mm. Wow. You do hard work. It is, it is, but it's, ah, um, you know, honestly though, what made it tougher was not being able to be physically there during this time. Oh, with the person that you're with and supporting. Yeah. Because of COVID, you can't, you can't do that right now. Typically, I would travel to be with um, a family. There have been times that I've worked where I've actually sat with the family for up to six months during the course of five, you know, um, but you can't be there at this time. It's all virtual. Mm, That's painful. And sometimes you have to honor the fact that you can't even be on video because, um, the people, the family who are involved don't want to be, and you have to honor that. Mm -hmm. If you would like to contribute to the podcast, please visit my Patreon page in the show notes. 20% of your proceeds each month will be going to a different organization fighting racism and providing legal support either inside or outside Canada. And 20% of your proceeds will be going to Doctors Without Borders. At $20 per month, you could become a VIP patron and get access to my weekly conscious body sessions. I present embodied spiritual and depth psychology-based reflections from my own journey. Trace, how did you get to be so special? (laughs) There's so, this is just a a part of the service you offer people and the care you offer people. I mean, this is just part. There's so much powerful, rich work that you're doing that is incredibly specialized and so um, thoughtful and handled with such care trial and error Mm -hmm. i mess up Mm -hmm. i do i mess up and um i've had situations where i've messed up didn't realize i messed up and people didn't tell me didn't give me any feedback on it and i probably did it again and then someone finally told me and i was able to go back and go oh no Mm -hmm. um constant evaluation. That's why I think when you do this kind of work or any of the kind of work that I do, when someone does become very critical, that also is discernment. Are they being critical just to be critical or is there something actually there? And that's a tough thing to travel through, right? Oh, it's so hard. So hard. 
because you're like, is this really how I am? Or am I just hearkening back to a trauma response of, you know, not being good enough and that kind of thing. So that's part of it, right? And so that's when you have to kind of sit down with yourself and go, today's a rest day. Mm. Today's my day to companion myself. It's hard. Yeah. It's, uh, and with you being so, we we're just talking about tightening up boundaries, you know, online. Um, people often in deep suffering have, it's so difficult to be really self-aware when we're suffering really intensely. It's just, we don't have the bandwidth for that. It's just gone. Um, like what other type of work are you finding is really uh, showing up for you right now, especially with the pandemic and everything? I'm seeing a lot of work that I'm doing right now, um, working with uh, transracial adoptees as adults, starting to be able to come out more in my work um, because my story sort of guides my work is my experience. Like I have something I didn't talk about for years and years and years and years that yes, I went through foster care. Yes, I went through some pretty, you know, but I have the ability to help others see, you know, through that. And um, so I've been doing a lot of work with that. Um, doing a lot of work with reclamation and cycle breaking, like helping people um, reclamation because no, everybody thinks that there's like steps to reclamation and you have to do it this way and you have to do it this way, but there's not. <laughs> so there's probably um, some folks who don't know what reclamation is who are listening right now. Do you, do you want to? Yeah. So reclamation is where perhaps you were separated from your culture. Um, maybe you were adopted. Um, maybe your family hid it for reasons of, you know, persecution or racism or whatever. Um, there's a variety of reasons. And you have discovered that you have this rich um, ancestry and you feel a calling or a pull to reclaim that to go through the process of reconnecting, reuniting, not only internally, but externally as well, and taking up the mantle of um, maybe cultural practices that really do belong to you and do belong to, and you have the right to practice. And it can happen in a variety of ways, you know, with DNA tests on the rise, right? You might start with a DNA test. Maybe you won't. DNA tests can be problematic. Um, so it's that process of doing that and reconnecting. And for some of us, it's uh, decolonizing. So that would be people who have been de-indigenized or people who are people of color. You would be decolonizing. For people who are not, you would be unsettling. We like to call it unsettling. Um, because your, your primary um, ancestors were settlers. Mm -hmm. For people who are uh, mixed, like I am, right? <clears throat> There's a whole nother process that involves not only decolonizing, but healing the 
sort of, because um, I feel like I talked about genocide showing skin. Some people call it white passing. I don't call it that, but white coded, white assumed. Um, there's that healing that portion, all those little things that sort of got assim when you were assimilated that are very colonized um, processes and thoughts and things like that. So you've got to do double duty. You're not only reclaiming <laughs> what was taken away from you in terms of culture, but you're also healing that inner colonizer at the same time. So that's what reclaiming is. Amazing. Thank you for explaining that. How do people find you to do this work? Um, I am, I'm starting to expand out, but I'm on Instagram. I was very, very active on Instagram, but I'm not quite as active anymore. I do have a website. My, my business coach is completely in awe of it because it's kind of like a healing platform. There's all sorts of ways that you can work with me. Um, being an entrepreneur, I don't believe in necessarily, even though I'm tightening down, I don't necessarily believe that there's one way to do something. I'm on Facebook. I don't have a Facebook page. I just have um, a Facebook profile and I accept followers with that. Um, I'm very careful about my boundaries in terms of what is public and what is private to my circle. Um, I um, am on the Clubhouse app. So just started getting involved with that. I There's other... Um, I don't even know what the Clubhouse app oh, is. Oh, I like, should invite you. I should invite What is the... I want to oh know. I'm like, what? I thought the it was... Clubhouse app cool. is a private... Um, you have to have an iPhone right uh -huh. now. It's a private invite only app where people get on. It's vocal. That's all it is. You don't have to be on camera or anything like that. And people start rooms and there's clubs and they talk about subjects. And literally the Clubhouse app is like 24 seven, depending on the time zone, you can hop in. People can ping you, say, hey, you might be interested in this talk. It's all literally free education. We have amazing conversations. These are people truly, truly connecting mm -hmm. at this time working out all these things together. And a lot of the people who are on it are people who do the work like you and I do, and we help each other. And then there's other people starting to come in and we're learning from each other. And it's like you hop into a room and it's just vocal and you can just sit and listen. Or if you want to come to the platform and you can talk, um, I have a talk tonight that I'm doing. What's uh, it on? But tonight we're going to talk about um, personal mortality, facing your personal mortality. If, if during the time of COVID, if that is something that come, came up for you and we're going to talk about what like anticipatory grief and things like that are like. Oh my God, Trace, everybody needs someone like you in their life because it's just, as soon as you know, you're actually going to die and you actually face that reality. You know, it could be 40 years from now. It could be, but like when you actually face that, face the truth that it is finite time here and you're not living for what's coming after, you know, some type of afterlife. Cause if we don't know what that looks like for everybody, you know, yeah. Oof, it's just, it's like the deepest, most therapeutic way to shift your paradigm in life. Isn't it? It is. It really is. And, um, it's, I think at the same time that, as you say, people need someone like me in my in their life. There's like lots of us death doulas. Some death doulas are practicing. Some are just educators. Um, uh, but it's also sort of a double-edged sword too, because we bring up some really tough subjects, and there's that strength of like the taboo. There's that strength of these are the things you don't talk about. 
the whispers and dark corners and things like that, that happens, that you also become sort of a mirror for people. At the same time, you're a flashlight, you're also a mirror. And people sometimes don't like what they see in the mirror. Yeah. Yeah. It's hard work. It's really hard work to really look straight in the mirror and stay steady and not fall into shame and, and not collapse under the weight of that, isn't it? It is. I I do it all the time. Like I, like I said, when I get criticism, the first thing I jump to is, okay, what part did I play in this? What do I need to look at? What do I need to change? Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, Even if the criticism is unfounded, I still look at that and go, hmm, maybe I need to change that. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, like, and then these, I'll tell you, I will send you an invite for the clubhouse app. <laughs> it is really incredible. It really is. It's a whole different, it's honestly, I feel safer there than any other social media. Cause I don't even really consider it social media per se. Mm-hmm. I love it. I just watched the social dilemma. Finally, after my yep. therapist was like, watch it, watch it. Have you watched it? I'm like, oh. Yes, I watched it. I did too. <laughs> <laughs> and it just was like, I don't, I don't know what's going on, what's going on in my brain. I don't understand what's going on in relationship. I don't understand what these relationships are on Instagram. I some yes, other ones I'm like, this feels really foggy and murky and funny and sticky and weird, you know, being like, quote. Um, educators or whatever, you know, I refer to myself as started calling myself an embodiment chaperone. I like that. <laughs> I know it's funny, right? Um, so do you want to talk about anything else to do with um, what's been shifting for you before we wrap up? I think. Yeah. 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 So I wanted to, cause this kind of goes in with the embodiment. Um, what's really shifted for me is, you know, I came out a few months ago Um, I am two-spirit because I'm indigenous, but non-binary completely. Um, Really, really, um, I don't want, even though I may seem femme presenting, um, I don't ever want, I'm not a woman. I don't want to be referred to as a woman or a man or a girl or a boy or any of these things. I'm a human being. So that's really shifted for me. And the really amazing thing that's shifted for me with it, and I'm still working with it, I'm still kind of easing into it, is my view of my own body and my disassociation from my body completely transformed. Mm. Um, I never, ever, ever felt comfortable in my body my entire life. Mm. Uh, Never liked looking at my own body. I just had... Literally, I can remember like even when I was younger, like showering and it being very quick. I don't like I just was never really in touch with that. Um, dance helped when I moved to New York. That helped being in the city, helped being around people like in the way that I was when I was a street photographer. That helped, but it still wasn't quite there. It got worse after I had a bike accident that was pretty bad that was hit and run. But then so. I can tell you when I finally was said, okay, this is my truth. And this has been my truth my entire life. I figured out it was like this revelation. This is why. 
because I was treated on such a binary. And from the time that I was little, because I uh, was trafficked, I was treated as a commodity and an object in my body. That's why. So when I was able to step fully into my truths, and I'm still working on it, I'm getting there. Um, it's really funny. I actually practice um, when I want to do new movements and things and I want to work on something, I actually do it in the shower hmm. because that's where I feel safe in the water. I love water. So I feel safe there and that's where I do it. So I'm, and then I thoroughly start moving that out into like my living room and movement and things like that. So once I did that, just everything changed. So that's why like when I do have things like misgendering, people not using proper pronouns, people calling me a woman, or there's certain people that I do allow to call me dude, because it's just a nickname, but things like that, that's why it is such an assault, because when you get to the point that you come home finally, and you're in a place where you feel safe, and then somebody smashes your windows, Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. right? That's an assault. So um, that is something that I've really, really honed in on in terms of, and I hope to contribute to that part of it is um, for people who are, because when you're non-binary, you're considered under the trans umbrella, you are trans. Um, and um, I consider myself trans. Um, it's a little different experience as being two spirit, but you, there's something involved there with your body. And for me, it was a huge, huge, huge part of, and it's so amazing. Like I can now accept when I put on clothes now, it's a different feeling, right? How I move through the world is a different feeling. How I move, I'm by myself most of the time. I'm isolated, it's COVID, <laughs> I live in New York City. Um, but even how I move when I'm in my own home has changed. So, so, so it's sort of being dissociated from your body was a requirement um, to not have to face the conflict that you were going to have to face in doing what you're doing right now. Yeah. Yeah. And, and now you're like, okay, it's here. This is it. And there's less of a struggle against what the collective tells you that your body is. So now you can drop in. Yeah. That helped. And the, I'm going to be honest, the isolation, the isolation helped me. Um, the not being in a relationship helped me. Choosing to be single helped me because I could separate myself from and really, truly drop into my own voice and have that discernment. And then I was like, oh, wow. Wow. So this is what it's like. This is what I've been missing my whole life. Oh, Trace, I'm so happy for you. Yeah. You're such a you. trailblazer. I, I'm listening to you and I'm just like, holy shit. The, the way you've taken all the things you've been through in your life and you've turned it into your work is astounding. Um, I'm just very in awe of you and so grateful to know you and that you would take the time to talk to me. 
about this and share this with other people. Um, I always ask people what they're listening to. And I was just loving the sound of New York in the background. I could hear a little, <laughs> I'm like, that's just so New York and I miss it. I miss it. I don't know when I'll get back there, but is there anything that you're listening to right now that you, you want to mention? Yeah. So I, um, have been listening to a lot of, um, his name is, uh, Residente. Mm -hmm. Um, is oh, a whole story that began with the DNA test and reclamation. Mm. And um, so I've been listening to a lot of Residente, uh, just a ton. I've been listening to a lot of, um, of course, Romani music, just. And um, I've been listening to, I cut out podcasts for a little while because I need to reevaluate my podcast listening. Um, really need to reevaluate what exactly I'm listening to and what I'm taking in. And then I've been listening to a lot of uh, sort of Andy's flute music, um, a lot of that. You've been getting your flute on? Oh, yeah. Like, it's like tons, tons of uh, that. I, I don't know why, but it's been doing it for me for some reason. Like okay, Trace, nobody knows this. I used to play the flute, like hardcore. Really? Oh. oh, yeah. I'm, I'm a flautist. And I did a comedy routine with a nose flute. Oh, wow. Yeah, so I'm all, all I'm awesome. all I'm all over the flute. Um, that's hilarious. <laughs> um, how can people find you? Well, you can find me on my website, which is athrivelife.org. Mm -hmm. um, you can find me on Instagram. I am private, just so you know. I'm, I have a private account, but it's athrivelife. Mm -hmm. You can find me on Facebook, which is Tracy at athrivelife. Not on Twitter yet. Mm -hmm. um <laughs> clubhouse app same thing you can find me on there my talks are on there and that's pretty much it for right now because I am expanding into patreon but all the links go from you'll find all the um links there's actually um it's athrivelife.org backslash learn dash more mm -hmm. I think that's what it is um and you can just click on that. That part is public on my profile on Instagram. Um, you click there and it actually tells you everywhere you can find me. I put out, I have a calendar that says, you know, where I'm going to be speaking, what I'm doing, what offers I have, all of that. I keep it pretty, pretty organized. Thank you. I'm so grateful for this conversation about death too, because it's so in the air. It is. So. So, yeah, thank you yeah. so much, Jane. Hey, Trace. Oh, thank you for having me. I'm so grateful. I'm actually in awe of you. Oh. When I first got introduced to you, I was like, this is, oh, thank you. Oh, well, <laughs> well I, it's a good day to hear that. I really appreciate that, Trace. Okay. And all of your stuff will be in the show notes. So folks, you can, you can find where to find Trace there. So yay. Thank you so much, Jane. Thank you.